0: You're listening to The Wrong Station Pledge Drive. The Wrong Station is only possible with supportive listeners like you. Become a subscriber today by visiting patreon.com slash thewrongstation. You'll receive access to bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes discussions, our new book club, and so much more. Today, The Wrong Station is proud to present Autumn Trees by Alexander Saxton. From early on in its use, Greenhouse Twelve had been nicknamed the Brown House because all the so-called plants inside were Hispaliade homo sapiens, each one bound and pruned from a fetus into the desired shape. You could stand at the raised catwalk along the south wall and look out upon row, upon row, upon row of them, like a dead orchard stretching into a vague distance underneath the arching roof of grey translucent plastic. Jack worked there as a sort of arborist. After shifts, he and his co-workers would sit outside on old wooden pallets stacked up on the grass, drinking lukewarm bottles of 3FG and talking about how they got there. The story always seemed to be the same. Went to school for restorative agriculture, or zoology, or veterinary medicine, and graduated to find the market wasn't kind in the types of world-saving jobs you wanted to do. But Astorium was always hiring. Here's how you made an espalier. Start with a sperm and egg cell, usually cloned. Allow fertilization to happen in a neutral, gel-like medium. Allow cells to divide solely along preordained channels. Surgically redistribute cardiac, neural, skeletal, and alveolar tissue while still preformed and plastic. Saturate with nutrient until it achieves a weight of roughly seven pounds and then deliver into incubation tent. Surgically intubate and infistulate, then feed and water until it grows large enough to provide useful organs and tissue, usually about eighteen months. Why grow organs this way instead of in a lab? Quite simple. They were being sold to restaurants, not hospitals. You know something I realized? Jack said once after a shift, a fourth bottle deep and feeling free. It was autumn, jean jacket weather, a bright clear sky turning to sunset behind the brown house. None of us went to school for this, right? Except that we did. We all just thought we were going to school to learn biology or whatever. But the reason the program even existed in the first place was so that there'd be people with the skills to work here, right? Like who funded the department? He drained his beer, a historian and places like it. We weren't the school's customers; we were its products. Yeah, man," said Granola Bev, cracking a fresh one. When you like think about it, we're just like them. She jerked her head back at the brown house behind them. We're just shaped. A couple people groaned. Even Jack had to put up his hands at that one. Okay, Bev," he told her. Let's not take it too far. Greenhouse 12 was the furthest point of Sunny Ridge Nurseries, Halton Region, a division of Historium Technologies. It sat about 50 meters north of Greenhouse 11 and perpendicular to it, with its north end overlooking the green tangle of the Credit River Valley. The valley, once a haven to local flora, was now an overgrown tangle of invasive species. Norway maple, buckthorn, garlic mustard, Japanese knotweed, biting flies that hounded you well past the first frost. Nobody had used the old trails back there in years, and even if they had, they would have stopped when Greenhouse 12 started keeping its huge, reeking compost bin out back. As a result, the only time anyone ever set foot behind Greenhouse 12 was when they had to wrestle the crackling, papery old sticks of a dead espalier out through the cloud of stink and flies that surrounded the bin there to toss them wetly inside and then make a hasty retreat. This often ended up being Jack's job, because he often ended up forgetting to chip in for beer, which is how he happened to be behind Greenhouse 12, that autumn twilight, with the sky peach and dim and the chill wind rustling through brown leaves all the way along the Credit Valley. Jack, slightly buzzed, was dragging a pair of dying espalier out to the back dumpster, which he'd forgotten to do before clocking out and cracking his first after-work beer. The two old things left a thin trail of blood and watery shit in the chalky dust. They were awkward to drag, and he kept dropping them. They made a clattering sound each time they fell, and the sound put your teeth on edge. He was already regretting not taking two separate trips by the time he rounded the back of the building, and the whole force of the stench hit him and he wasn't able to cover his nose. It had been a warm day before the sun started to dip. The smell was especially fecund. The flies, which pattered against his skin and denim, were especially thick. It was all he could do to stop himself from swallowing any as he heaved the first one, and then the other old bag of espaliered bones up over the dumpster's edge to land with something between a thud and a splash and a metallic clunk on the other side. He wasn't in the best of shape, and even in that heavy, buzzing air, he had to stop to catch his breath. Which was when the wind came up. Normally, he would have already been scrambling back around the building in search of cleaner-smelling air. But tonight, the breeze came and scattered the flies, bringing a fresh smell of autumn and trees, and he paused for a moment. Looking down at the ravine, watching pink twilight waft cotton candy clouds behind the shadowy claws of the woods, watching the black silhouettes of final leaves tremble and snap off in the wind. Then the wind died. But, though the smell and flies returned, the movement in the forest did not cease. The whole edge of the woodland tremble and moving on its own, though the evening had gone still and there was no breeze in his ears to muffle the soft shiver and moan of the discarded things in the dumpster behind him. As he looked on at that moving forest in disbelief, they came out to feed. Wild espaliers. They moved with a slow, lurching smoothness, less like animals, or even plants, than like the spoked kinetic statues he had once seen powered by the blowing wind on a beach. Their movements rolled, they spiraled through the trees and shrubbery with a whisper, touching the ground with knotted pods or angular joints. Some were covered in short, coarse hair, some armed against attack with knobs and spines and claws of a sort of fingernail material. He realized with horror that these wild grown espaliers were cousins and descendants to the ones inside his tent, as feral pigs to tender pink swine. He took a step back as they descended on the dumpster. Some were small, no higher than his knee. Some were even larger than the ones they raised inside. Amongst the moving thicket towered one higher than all the rest, almost thirteen feet tall, a living tree of human flesh. It reached into the steel bin, withdrew effortlessly the two bodies he had just thrown in, and folded itself around one of them, tossing the other to the ground for its, its pack, its kin, its people to consume they began to feed, and as the pack picked and plucked at its victim with beak-like extrusions of finger and tooth, he began to step back. One of the smaller espaliers turned to look at him. He thought, looked, though the smooth and bottle-shaped vestigial cranium had no eyes or snout of any sort, yet there must have been a mind inside, of some sort. He felt, perceived, and as he did, He felt afraid. These things were dangerous by definition. Like so few things in nature, they only fed off human flesh. As calmly as he could, he turned and walked away. They did not follow him. This time, when he arrived back at the parking spaces, at his laughing co-workers with their bottles, they asked what was wrong when he couldn't bring himself to drink from the smooth brown glass they handed back to him. Uh, nothing, he said with a wince. Then, after that, I don't think we should go back there alone after twilight. Um, I just think I might have seen something moving out there. In the woods.